This is channel 253. One, two, two. Interchangeable. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Today we have an essential question. What is an interchangeable white lady and why does it matter? So this episode of IWL is brought to you by... Cardigans, the uniform staple of interchangeable white ladies everywhere. Find them at your local Target or Walmart <laughs> in a variety of seasonably appropriate colors. Apple mint, spearmint, peppermint, orange mint, and wintergreen. Hashtag Cardi Party. Okay, so Hope, you wrote an article about interchangeable white ladies. I need for you to explain yourself because I don't. <laughs> I read it, okay, but like you're the author, so tell me about it. So about a year ago, um, almost to the day, August, I published a piece um, on my website, hopeteague.com, and it was called Interchangeable White Ladies, an Introduction. Would you call this an article or like a blog? Mm, it's a blog, I, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, essay format, if I'm going to get all um, mm. particular. <laughs> since English, I teach English teacher. So uh, in this post, it was kind of a culmination of a lot of conversations. I've been teaching for 11 years, and uh, as a white lady in the classroom, I've noticed over the years, and depending on where I've worked, um, obviously my student demographics have changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so, as you know, uh, we work at one of the highest poverty high schools and the most diverse high schools mm -hmm. uh, in the county is what I've heard. And so it kind of came to this fruition of all these different ideas going around and going, okay, so how do my students perceive me as a teacher, and what does that mm -hmm. mean in terms of my teaching and my practice? A full disclosure, we teach together in the same building. so <laughs> But not the same. Not the uh, same subject or the same floor. Yes. True. Yes. Okay. So uh, that kind of came from those discussions. And so this idea of like students are viewing us as kind of the same person, right? So even though they're going from my class to your class to mm -hmm. another class, uh, it might feel the same. And, we, you know, we joke around like students call us the name of the teacher beforehand, <laughs> right? I don't know how many times I've been called your name. Yeah. Like, hey, Mystique, no. Yep, and I always laugh because I'm like, if I if I get called Miss Kaysen, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely Miss Kaysen We look today. a lot alike, yeah. We look so much alike, <laughs> not really. Yeah. But it's awesome. Um, and so it's kind of funny, but also playing off this idea that uh, what, do, what are students really taking away from our classes? Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the teaching profession looks one type of way, but our students look a different type of way, how mm -hmm. are we mitigating that? How are we building those bridges? Um, across cultures. And so this came out and kind of the conversation <laughs> was, um, it's like, is this an offensive term? So that was kind mm -hmm. of something that I was grappling with. How did, yeah, how did people respond to that terminology? Was it like, I mean, it sounds like some most people were pretty open to it. Like, okay, but did you have some pushback from people and who, what people <laughs> were those? Um, so most people were pretty positive about it and kind of laugh, but also I actually had, it was interesting because I had some folks who are also other white teachers, but not necessarily women, mm -hmm. who found themselves in the piece. And I think that's part of it is it's not just about white women. I mean, that's the focus because if you look at stats we have, I was just re-looking at those. Um, and if we look at the profession, 82% identify as white. And then of that 82, there's stats that say around 74, 76% of teachers are women. And so you can kind of mm -hmm. extrapolate from there. Um, but a lot of men, white men in particular, uh, talked to me about, wow, I found myself in this piece, too, and kind of wow. challenged me to think about myself in a little bit of a different way. I did get a little pushback um, from some white ladies, of course, 
um, who were talking about, well, it's kind of offensive to call us interchangeable because, you know, we as um, white Americans in particular, I would say, really hold this idea of individualism. Um, and even though it's something mm -hmm. that's founded on our, our country is founded on, I think of it very much as kind of a European value mm -hmm. um, and a white value. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that idea? I agree. I think just I mean, thinking about American culture as being uh, individualistic and not like collectivist type culture or we don't we have this um, kind of uh, kind of in it for yourself sort of mm -hmm. attitude. And I think mm -hmm. that has to do with sort of like capitalism as well, but we don't have to get into that rabbit hole today. Um, but I, I think a lot about um, just if you're in it for yourself, you don't necessarily do a lot of reflection with the people around you. Um, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, yeah, our culture is very, if you think about the fact that white folks uh, have the most power in our culture as well, mm -hmm. then that would make sense that white people would be kind of taken aback. Like if you if you accuse me of being um, a certain way, right? I'm an individual. I'm I'm my own person. So how can you lump me in with this other group of folks? Like I'm not like them, right? Um, no one wants to think of themselves as being as being um, not themselves. I mm -hmm. guess does that make sense? Yeah, and I was thinking. It's, you know, really, yeah, what you were talking about, this idea of, of judging the individual. We really want to be judged that way. But I will be the first to admit that we don't do that with other people, oh, particularly no. yeah. um, communities of color. It's really easy uh, to just say, oh, that whole group, that right. whole neighborhood. Well, and I think about our students and how, how many times I've heard adults say about, just about our students that they kind of talking about them as a group. And it's it's really not helpful in that conversation about how, how do we be good advocates and good um, allies to our students when they're kind of navigating a system that disadvantages them. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful really to lump them all together, right? They have different experiences. They have diverse experiences yeah. even within their own groups. So I think that is uh, yeah, something to keep in mind as, as educators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's where the title came from. It's kind of tongue in cheek, but also this point of just saying like, look, uh, we need to recognize that um, this is what's happening, too, mm -hmm. and how, you know, we view our students in one way or our communities in one way. And yeah. what does that look like for us kind of going back? Uh, I did get a little uh, I'm trying to grapple and figure out how to explain why it's funny slash OK to say interchangeable white ladies. Mm -hmm. But it's really not OK to say all Asians look the same yeah. or all uh, people in this community. I really think it's because we have privilege, right? Yes. Like that's the that's the key, right? If we if we can, it's almost like you can make fun of that if you have it, right? Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't make fun of it um, in other. It's not cool to make fun of it in other people. Like it's not, and it's not moving conversation forward. But if we can poke fun at our own privilege in a way, it sort of exposes sort of the underbelly of that privilege. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, we can like look at it now, right? Like. Um, yeah, and humor is one way to access that, and I think it's yeah, yeah. It seems like it's um kind of hope. My hope is that it poke, pokes fun at us to say like this is preposterous, and we really shouldn't yeah. be doing people in this way, uh, and also maybe getting us thinking a little more critically mm -hmm. about how we view other people, absolutely, right? how we lump people together, or how are we paying attention to the individual. So you did you gave readers a challenge, and I'm interested in like, can you explain what that was? What the challenge was. Yeah, so at the end of the piece, I kind of broke down three challenges that I feel was something I was grappling with at that time. But I still feel it is a, a huge part of um, the way I think about teaching, the way I think about how I move in the world. And as I said before, I mean, this is very education-heavy piece. But mm -hmm. at the same time, the implications are much further than that. So 
Um, one of my challenges was to teach in a culturally responsive way based on the students before us. And so there's that word, cultural competency, cultural spectrum, cultural, what are some other versions of that? Mm-hmm. Cultural sensitivity. Yeah. Cultural awareness. There you go, yeah. yeah. So there's so many terms kind of thrown around. And, I, and I, I feel like with the things that I'm reading or sometimes when I hear folks talking about it, it's very much like an arrival point. Mm-hmm. And for me, my understanding is it's not an arrival point. It mm-hmm. is this long trajectory that we are working on. And I, I feel like the moment you you think you understand another group of people or a person, right, mm-hmm. like going back to that individualization, yep. a person and or patterns, the moment you start to do that, uh, there's so much more that's there, and then you realize things are changing. So I teach—one of the things I teach is a 10th grade English class, and our focus is on culture. Mm-hmm. And over the last few years of teaching that, I've read a number of things that talk about how cultures are dynamic, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that. Oh, just when we've identified these markers of this culture or these values, those things can change because cultures interact and they share ideas. I mean, you're mm-hmm. the history teacher, so you— Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could probably explain that. <laughs> well, I mean, just that, like, you know, cultures collide and adapt and change over time. So it, there's— you can take a snapshot of what culture looks mm-hmm. like at this moment in time, but there's the only thing you can count on is change, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So that was kind of the challenge I, I think that's out there for me um, and challenging other people too. So how do I make sure that I don't just go, oh, these 10th graders every year, they're this way. Right. Um, and I look at the students in front of me and go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, here's 30 new individuals in mm-hmm. this one class period. Yeah. You know, what do they need? How do I need to adapt the curriculum? How do I need to exa- adapt my examples? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, fine, Drake's a good example for a little while, but I need to move <laughs> on. Am I still using Drake as the example? Right. Like, who's, who's the next person that I, I need found to I found that when attention? I use historical examples for things, I have to be really <laughs> careful because— I remember the 90s, and my oh, students yeah. do not, uh, because some of them were born in, like, 2002. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember 2002. So um, <laughs> I think about that a lot. Like, how do I how do I stay relevant to what they mm. need? And not just, like, culturally relevant, but, like, how do I not be super corny? Mm. You know, like, I have been called corny. Uh, yeah, I thought I heard that was your nickname. Yeah. Since were spreading that Cor- cornball, cornier than cornbread. Like, yeah. I am su- I'm super corny um, because I I, I – I have to work to understand how culture has changed. And you should work to understand how culture has changed. You shouldn't just roll over and be like, oh, it's just like, I'm just going to do things the way I've always done them because they've always worked. Well, obviously they haven't worked because you're not adapting what your students need. So Why do you feel like you should? Should adapt? Yeah, because I'm going to push back a little bit. Uh, I've heard that from folks. Why should I? Because if I'm going to be a responsive educator, I cannot just rely on these... Um, assumptions that I've always operated under, right? Like if I'm looking at, like you just said, if I'm looking at a room full of 30 new faces, people who I've just met, Mm -hmm. it's not even about, um, you know, kind of the broader cultural context of like, you know, things are constantly shifting in like music and art and um, their understanding of the world and how they interpret it. It's also their their individuals, right? If I'm looking at them and I'm trying to understand what it is about their culture that they love, Mm -hmm. what they care about, what they're passionate about, if I don't understand those things, I don't understand them. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, challenge two, the second challenge I put out there uh, was this idea, uh, kind of building off, to view our instruction through the lens of traditionally marginalized youth. And so, I mean, that's a bunch of fancy words, but, <laughs> but <laughs> essentially. What it can, uh, for our listeners out there, what, is, uh, what does marginalized mean? 
Can you? Yeah. So I think of marginalized. Okay, I'm going to explain it how I would to my students. Uh, essentially, think about a piece of paper. And mm-hmm. on the edges of the piece of paper, oh. that's the margins. And when you're hanging out on the edges, you're by yourself. It's lonely yeah. out there. There's nobody else there. Okay. And sometimes like you that. get pushed out to yeah. those things by other people. Sometimes you're just out there just because that's what's happened. And yeah. you have no um, agency. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Do you think that sometimes, like— Positive things happen in the margins, like do, mm-hmm. like doodling, sometimes good for the brain, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, like when— Annotation yeah, happens in like the when, when we see, like, like if people are marginalized, do they find each other? And, like, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that being marginalized is a positive thing, but is there some kind of sense of community in, like, in that? I don't know. Being outside the dominant culture. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it depends on are you—that's, I mean, generally not how we use it. Right. When we talk yeah, as a negative connotation. Yeah, it's pretty negative. Right. But I think it also depends on the power dynamic. Right. Mm-hmm. So who is who's being marginalized, who's consistently being marginalized and why? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just like I went to Hot Topic and I bought some clothing or like these earrings because I'm making the choice to be fringe or on the edge. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's why I would use the word fringe or edge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or hanging out in the margins, like on the outside, but really that idea of marginalize. I think of it. This is my English teacher nerd, like that root word, right? So it's like a system mm-hmm. where you're outside those. Well, things. like who puts you there? Do you yes. put yourself there, or does someone else put you there, yeah. or does a social structure put you there? Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I like that. The other isms are the uh, things that are happening in our society that put us out there. Mm-hmm. So thinking about marginalized youth, I mean, I'm not going to say that my students are all marginalized. No way, right? So. They have communities of their own with their families. Um, we live in the same community, so we have community together, mm-hmm. um, depending on which community I'm trying to identify. Um, but I just think that idea that they're const- young people are constantly marginalized, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So we're, it's funny, we try to be not an ist society, but we're super ageist, right? So we're yeah. ageist about young people, we're ageist about old people. I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because I, I did a, a teacher training in Seattle at the federal courthouse mm-hmm. this earlier this week, and it was a, called the Judicial Institute, and it was amazing. And I met Mary Beth Tinker. Do you know who that is? No, tell me more. Oh my gosh, or maybe amazing. I do. Amazing. So I'm do really you, bad at names. Do you know the um, the Tinker versus Des Moines Supreme Court uh-huh. case with the black armbands protesting the Vietnam War? She was a plaintiff in Tinker oh. versus Des Moines, so I got to meet her. And her big thing that's like her mission in life now. She was a nurse for a long time. She had like a regular life. And now she's touring the country, like being a youth advocate and saying like, we need to listen to youth because their stories are important. We need to promote youth journalism. We need to do, we need to like bring up youth because they are, you know, it's kind of like that, the super corny, like they're the future. But like, she's like really like, no, there are activists. There are movers and shakers. They're the people who are going to make a difference in this world. Like um, they're inheriting some kind of mess, right? And so like they're taking that and turning it into something really beautiful. So yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like how do we, how do we raise up youth voices? And our our society is really ageist, right? Mm -hmm. Like I I agree with you about that. That's a good example um, of something more relevant do you so walking away from that? What's you're kind of talking about? Like, how does that look for you? Mm-hmm. Have you come to any conclusions? I mean, it's only a couple mm-hmm. days ago. Well, I've been thinking about how like how to get youth in the community to mm-hmm. um, I don't know internships, right? Or yeah. like how to get them in places like places where they normally wouldn't have access, right? Like I was at the federal courthouse, and that's uh, there were several judges there, district court judges who were like, "Oh yeah, this is your courthouse. Welcome to your courthouse," and they treated it like it was everybody's and. I never really thought about it that way because when you go through the front door, you're going like through TSA type security. (laughs) And I was like, I don't feel like this is just like mine, but you can go to any hearing at the federal court. And there's a federal courthouse in Tacoma. So I'm like, 
what? I want to get kids there, right? I want them to experience it because yeah. it's it's their court, right? That'd be awesome. Especially our students who are really diverse and they, their interactions with the judicial system might not be positive, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you get them to have those positive experiences? That kind of reminds me of um, the Next Move internships. Mm-hmm. So, at Lincoln, at our school, we um, have a partnership with Next Move, and they work all across the mm-hmm. Tacoma. Yeah. And one of the things I love about that program is it's just so real. So they come to the mm-hmm. high school, students apply, but they help the students work through a resume, work through a cover letter, do interview like real interviews where yeah. they have to dress up and have real conversations. And at the same time, it's couched in like they understand that these are young people that are learning these skills. Yeah. And I love that. And then in the summertime, you know, so they have internships throughout the year and then Jobs 253, mm-hmm. Summer Jobs 253. Yeah. Does that work in the summertime? And students can actually make money, get experience, like build community, yeah. try new things. Yeah. Well, and I think kind of coming full circle, that gives students access to power, right? <laughs> if we're talking about power and privilege, like that yeah. gives them access to here's a, a system of uh, like, I don't know, the procedure you go through for employment. Like, mm-hmm. how do you make a resume? How do you interview? How do you present yourself, right? Um, it, it opens up a door to that kind of uh, that world that maybe wouldn't be open otherwise. Um and gives students of color especially the opportunity to, you know, make their mark, right, in yeah. our community, which they sometimes are denied that opportunity, right, often denied that opportunity. So, If you're someone listening who has a chance to get connected with Summer Jobs 253 or Next Move Internships, please, please, please consider joining up, supporting those programs, yep. making a place for a student to come in and intern Absolutely. with you. Little side note there. <laughs> um, the third challenge, actually, that I put out. There are three. Yeah, there are three. And the pro- the thing about, I mean, writing this piece is, like, I was looking back at it. Every time I pull it out again, remind myself, I'm like, oh, there's so much more that I could say or write or think about. I need to think about um, all these undertones. I mean, that's part of the problem with writing is that it's there's so much more usually that's there. Uh, yeah. The third one is just this idea of interchangeable white ladies. Okay, fine. If our students view us this way, they're moving from class to class. We're all doing the same routines, which, you know, are pedagogically sound. They're good for teaching. They sure. help move students forward. But uh, what does that mean in terms of our allyships for students mm-hmm. and really helping them fight uh, institutional racism, fighting it with them, um, equipping them in ways that maybe they're not equipped, kind of what we were just talking about there as an extension of that. Yeah. Through the power of education, because we know education has the power to change trajectories. I mean, I really believe in that as a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming you do too. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> so with that, um, you know, what's the challenge? How can I be a better ally? Which is where, you know, my writing has come from that idea, but also this podcast has kind of evolved a little bit around that. Mm-hmm. You read the piece. I mean, what do you? Are there things that you were thinking about? Yeah, well, it really, about? it actually really hit home for me because I know almost everyone you talked about in the article. You mentioned people by their first names, and I was like, oh, I know everybody. Uh, <laughs> so it was actually, I was like, those are my coworkers. So that was very, um, that really hit home for me uh, and made a lot of sense. Uh, it came at just the right time when I, I've been thinking a lot about, a lot about our school and just about how much I love my students and like how we're in kind of trying times in America, right? For students of color, for young people. Um, so that, that's really been, it really resonated with me. I definitely, I definitely fall into that category of interchangeable white lady, right? Um, because I, I don't know, I never, I never could put words to it, but that's what it, that's what it is. It's, that's how it feels. It's, you described exactly what it's like. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, that's, I totally know what you're talking about. Um, since I have privilege and I'm in a position of authority, uh, how do I deal with, how do I deal with those feelings of, like, white guilt, I guess. Yeah. Um, and w- 
also fragility. So like I have this, uh, I have a few friends on on social media who are just very uh, no nonsense people of color, very smart, very very great writers who are constantly posting online about like like your white fragility is BS. Like you just need to like be a good ally. Like what does that look like? I I think a lot about what that looks like. Stop wallowing in this p- self pity about how oh you're just like a you're just a white person who doesn't understand right. Like you need to pull your get yourself out of that like mindset of feeling guilty and feeling bad about it and just like use your privilege for something good. So how how can I do that? So I've it kind of was in part of a l- larger conversation yeah. about about in my own life about. How do I um, how do I move away from feeling guilty about having privilege and using it for something better? Around this around the same time I discovered Roxanne Gay, so I have I yeah. So that was another really influential person who basically I'm paraphrasing, but she said something like, "If you um, you need to not um, feel guilty about like being born like white or privileged, but it doesn't matter that you were born that way. You don't need to apologize for it. Even like you need to um, figure out how to use your privilege." to help people who don't move through society as easily as you do Mm -hmm. um, and to acknowledge that they exist. So her thinking about it is really pretty profound. So, yeah, it kind of was part of a larger series of thoughts about how do I support my students? I love my students. How do I care for them? How do I be less basic as a white person? How do I suck less? Because (laughs) I sometimes do suck. And I recognizing that I suck sometimes uh, is part of the journey, right? So can you talk a little bit more about, like, how you think about the term white fragility? Because I, I hear people, like, yeah. define it a little bit differently, and I don't know if everybody listening. Yeah, is. I think it's just when you're called out, you are defensive. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I think of as white fragility. And um, I've gotten so much better at being not defensive when people call me out for, for white nonsense. Like, they'll say, you know, you are, um, you know, if you're if I'm using my privilege in a way that is, um, I don't know, is is too is hurting people around me or is I'm being totally unconscious about it. I do. I've done a lot of reflection about how do I, how do I get away from that um, feeling of self-pity, I guess. Like I didn't ask for this, you know, I've gotten my cross. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's, I definitely, I've definitely gotten better at it over time. And I think that's a conversation every white person needs to have with themselves. Like Mm. what am I doing that maybe, um, what am I doing that maybe, hurting the people around me, even if I'm not doing it on purpose. Yeah. Right. And how do I address that? And how do I fix it? Well, and I'd argue most people are probably doing it unconsciously. Yeah. Um, accidentally. I, I think it's really easy for white people in particular um, to just ignore the ideas of race um, mm-hmm. because we consider ourselves the norm or that's what it seems yeah. around us. Um, and I don't know the exact word to describe that, but I think sometimes there's pushback with those concepts only because um, it seems like we're, like, talking down about a race. But I really I really like your point about, you know, embracing that. And I think that was partly what I've been writing about and then just thinking about my own journey is now that I'm—that's fine. It's There's great things about being a white person, mm-hmm. right? There are things that are systemic— uh, benefits. There are things, but b- bigger than that is like we can't even control, yeah. right? We can't control that to a lot of degree. I still, I mean, I still come from a place of like race is a social construct. Yeah, like we've created that as a well, system. Well, and also like, um, I think the the way that the white folks and I have definitely seen this in action in my life is we see when people bring up white privilege or bring up um, anything to do with systems of power, people think about personal. Yeah 
racism. They don't think about systemic racism. They think about racial slurs or they think about posting something nasty about someone on the Internet, right? They don't think about the kind of systems at play that Mm -hmm. are racist, right? And those are the things that are worse and more insidious, right? Those are, you know, those are the things that are much worse. So that personal racism is horrible and painful and acute and crappy and um, just like— I said crappy because we're trying not to swear, um, <laughs> but like just so bad, right? Um, and and hurt we hurt each other, right, with our language. But that personal racism is is just scratching the surface of how how deep it goes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting stuff. So, what's one thing um, that you feel like is something that you're doing as like you are realizing this about yourself and your journey? I was thinking about some of the things that I've tried to do or adapt and change mm-hmm. both in my classroom and then like in public. Yeah. Um, is there anything that comes to mind? Well, in teaching, I definitely am. I try to be more aware of who's in my classroom because I I never really gave it that much thought until I conceived of myself as an interchangeable white lady that I am standing in front of a really diverse groups of students uh, and they may not see themselves in me. So working harder for those students, mm. for making sure that they know that I care about them. Um, and that's taken on – there are a couple different ways that that works, like checking in personally with students, um, asking them about how they are more frequently. Like I always I always try to have a, a good relationship with my students regardless of what grade they're in or what subject I'm teaching. Um, it's easy with seniors because I teach seniors, yeah. and they socially connect more readily with adults because they're in that kind of transition period out of high school. But working with all students and thinking about thinking about how I um, how I'm cultivating uh, relationships with them that are I actually care about what they care about. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And once you you know, it's hard when you're first teaching because you you don't necessarily focus on relationships. You focus on not drowning. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. first-year teacher, second-year teacher, it's all about survival. Um, How many you, years in do you have now? Um, so I'm starting my fifth year. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm starting to actually have room and capacity to have good relationships with students, and I think that that's critical, right? Like, you show students that you care about them and that they matter, and that's everything. Yeah, relationships, I mean, we see that in research. We see that in experience. Relationships are number one with students yeah. and getting them to learn um, I knew that going into teaching. I mean, this is my, I just wrapped up my 11th year. So ugh, going into year 12, this is crazy <laughs> to think about. Um, but in year one, I, I had a really good master's program at the Evergreen State College. Hey. And I, uh, one of the things I really appreciate is that they made us look at ourselves and kind of going yeah. back to the idea of like privilege and who we are and our own identity. Yeah. I mean, my parents did a pretty good job of bringing that up. So mm-hmm. I grew up in like church environment. And so there's a lot of reflection within that. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid in the Philippines. So there was like, I was definitely the minority at the same time. I'm a white person. Mm-hmm. And so I'm coming from the United States. There's a lot of power that's automatically mm-hmm. assumed, a lot of privilege. Um, and grappling with those things yeah. was like a challenge, right? And so thinking about taking that stuff with me as I grew as an adult and then going into the classroom yeah. and trying to connect with students. But I would say definitely year 11, my connections with kids is different. I approach it differently. Yeah. I'm trying. I, I don't know. It's easier. Right? Like you said, kind mm-hmm. of it's, it's easier over time because you feel like you've got this toolkit. Uh, maybe you're balancing things better. Yeah. But I also don't want to become lazy and just be like, oh, right. I'm so great. I'm going to connect yeah. with everybody. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I, I think about like I grew up really poor. And so I think about 
the students who are poor in my classrooms, mm. I can spot them immediately when they walk in the door. Like I see them and I'm like, yep, I recognize the the things that kind of indicate poverty because I lived through that, right? So I think about um, how I respond to those students differently too, like, or their social emotional needs because I know that I had a unique set of social emotional needs growing up. So mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, it's, it's weird looking at uh, my classroom and knowing that a lot of our students live in poverty and how do you be responsive to poverty and how does that intersect with race in our community? So that's another another piece that is make, complicates matters. It's so complicated. It is complicated. I have yeah. a I have a question for you sure. and this is sort of changing topics, but it's really important that I ask you. Um, I'm not trying to make it weird. Okay. Um, but are you making a podcast about yourself? Because um, it seems like you wrote a beautiful piece about interchangeable white ladies and now there's a <laughs> podcast called interchangeable white ladies and i'm really happy to be here but help are you making a podcast about yourself um yes <laughs> <laughs> and no uh <laughs> one of the ways that i kind of transitioning the podcast format is new for me it's uh exploratory but i find that you can have more nuanced conversations more mm-hmm. free-flowing Writing is really uh, structured, and it just goes out there, and then mm-hmm. people take it all kinds of ways. I mean, I guess that's similar static. to podcasts. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty static. It's a good word for it. So last year when I um, started a website and started r- more public writing that way, I told myself I would commit to a year of writing once mm-hmm. a month and so try that as a different genre. And One of the reasons that motivates me actually is my students because um, while I was a struggling writer in high school, you know, now I'm teaching writing. Mm-hmm. And I tell them all the time, you got to take risks. You got to try new things. You gotta yeah. do something different. And so one of my personal challenges is trying to model that too. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, no kid reads my writing. That's fine. I don't want them to necessarily. <laughs> but uh, I want to be able to go, hey, yeah, I was working on this piece this yeah. weekend. Or like sh- model that, right? Like how mm-hmm. has my writing changed over the years? Well, I, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but I, um, I'm sure I didn't actually now that I'm thinking about it. So I... I always try to do National Novel Writing Month in November, yeah. and I never have so succeeded. Stressful. It's so stressful. It's not even, and it's like novella. It's not even like a novel length. It's like you. I think I don't even know how many pages it is because I've never finished. Isn't um, it fifty thousand words? You're supposed to write something minimum? like that. Yeah, but I, every November I always crowdsource ideas from my students. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to see a book about? I do every <laughs> single year, and I never finish. Um, but I know what you mean about you know talking to students about your writing. It can be you get you get all this inspiration and you know everything from your students but you know it, that's one group of folks that I don't know sometimes I don't I don't know getting their ideas their ideas can be a little out there yeah it's cause awesome because they're young and they just you know they see the world differently than we do it's yeah. a whole different lens but well so thinking about the podcast uh want to do a podcast because I think this allows us like a little more fluidity than writing um and our hope you know pull in some guests have some people talk about these things where they overlap Absolutely. Yeah. particularly you brought up intersectionality I mean these things aren't in isolation from each other so yes interchangeable white ladies right that's race and gender identity but not yeah. necessarily what we're limited to so. yeah absolutely okay so if you could tell me is there anything else you want to tell me about yourself? Try to keep it under 140 characters, please. Because we're on Twitter right now. Whatever. <laughs> Time is of the essence. So um, so I hit on a couple of those things. Grew up as a missionary kid, uh, mostly in Asia. Lived in Eastern Europe a little bit. Uh, went to private I school. I didn't know that. That's really cool. You didn't know that? No. Albania. It's what? next to Greece. Yeah, I know where Albania is. Uh, it's very interesting. Because I teach geography. That is <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Uh, went to private school in Southern California, which is a whole other oh, thing. Oh, what? I didn't know that um, either. Did not plan to do that, but then that's how it worked out. Yeah. Um, and then came back up to Washington State, 
went to the Evergreen State College for master's, and I'm really glad I had those contrasts of experience for um, undergrad and graduate, and then started teaching. And I really wanted to work in an urban environment. So, of course, I got a job in Kent the first time, which yeah. is not at all. Um, but my years at Cambridge High School were amazing. I learned so much from the staff there and from the students in particular. Yeah. And uh, the way at my particular school we were tracking at the time, um, I was working with students that I wanted to work with. So I, you know, I went into teaching because I was like, oh, I'm going to not, you know, not just be like the, oh, save your white lady. Yeah. Like, definitely that's like in your back of your mind, I think, if you're going to admit to it. Um, but that's not what, that wasn't my intent. I was, my, I've always been raised to like care about um, people that no one else cares about yeah. um, or try to. And so that's kind of what I went into. And here I was, I'm like, middle class school. Mm-hmm. This is totally not that. And then it turns out, what do you know? I have mostly students in special education in my classes, um, a lot of second language learners, students, um, students of color. Mm-hmm. And so it was really interesting, but it was a really good beginning stage. And then I came down, went to work at Clover Park High School, Absolutely loved my time there and then um, got moved to Tacoma schools or moved to Tacoma schools and it just was, yeah, made it back. I really love it. That's awesome. How about you? What's your quick bio? Well, I'm 30 years old, (laughs) which is, I'm in that third decade now officially. Um, I do, like I mentioned before, I remember the 90s, which was, uh, which is pretty incredible when you talk to students about what they remember from their early childhood and they remember things that I did. Yeah, are totally different context. Um, I teach government in U.S. history, which is fantastic. I'm also unapologetically nerdy about history and civics. Uh, I did go to Western, so that's my um, my claim to fame. Um, I went to Western for undergrad, and I got a degree in political science and English, uh, and I also got a master's from Western in teaching. So I love Western, and I love Bellingham. Um turns out you can't get a job there. So <laughs> I left, <laughs> not because I wanted to. Uh, still breaks my heart a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I I really love history and civics. That's kind of my jam. Uh, like, um, uh, I met Mary Yu. Do you know who that is? The name's familiar. I think I saw her. She's amazing. She's just a, tell, just wa- tell me about it. Okay, so she's a Washington, one of Washington State Supreme Court oh, justices. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I met her at that training I went to, and she is extremely badass. She's biracial. She's queer. She's, she's Latina and... I believe Chinese descent. Um, awesome. She's just like completely amazing. I admire her so much that I shook her hand and I literally forgot my name. <laughs> like I looked into her beautiful kind eyes and I just I just freaked out. I was like, I really like you. You're really cool. I'm a big fan. And I walked away. Fangirl. I realized I didn't even say my name. And then I walk. I I turned around and I walked back up to her. This is so awkward. I'm the most awkward person. And I was like, Do you visit schools? And she was like, Yeah. <laughs> and she said, What's your name, Annie? She had to look at my name tag. Like it was the whole thing. So if that gives you any idea, indication of um, the kind of people I idolize, it would be like people on the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> like a real nerd. Yeah, basically. Um, so I, like I said before, I, I grew up poor, but I'm basically middle class now, which yeah. is actually really rough transition because I don't know how to act around fancy people. Like if I meet anybody <laughs> fancy, I'm like, I just kind of clam up or I say something stupid or like, I just don't know how to Why do people use so many forks? That's always a question. Right? I don't understand. So that's me too. Because I think about all the dishes you have to do. I know. And the only only reason I know anything about multiple forks is that I... I did Girl Scouts and they made us do like an etiquette thing because it was a Girl Scouts in the 90s so they made you do the etiquette class you know okay sit you know cross cross your legs at the ankle and you move from the outside in with your forks and so you know it's just um, 
that was a, that was my taste of the fancy life as a child was Girl Scout etiquette class. But um, yeah, pretty they don't, you know, Girl Scouts don't do etiquette class anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> that's another topic for another show. Apparently. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like whether that's Did you do Girl Scouts? No. Oh. So we always joked about like our lives were Girl Scouts and like camping basically. Yeah. We lived out of a backpack a lot of our time. <laughs> right. Um, in different countries. No, I never did Girl Scouts. We had um, through church, we had like missionettes. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> That sounds learn. like a like a chocolate coated candy you would get at like a discount store missionettes. <laughs> yeah, and so it, in that you learned like it was like character development. We didn't yeah. record any practical skills like yeah. you know like how to start a fire or yeah. how to use a salad fork. No badges, but yeah. my mom is a seamstress, so we learned a lot of good skills from that. Yeah, I learned I hate sewing. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I uh, there's one to, one other thing. I sorry, I just mm. realized I need to tell people because they need to know. I don't live in Tacoma, but yep. I, I love Tacoma so much that it hurts. So. That's why I spend so much time here. I work in Tacoma, and I love Tacoma very much. Why so. do you love Tacoma so much? Um, because it's wonderful, and people here are wonderful. And I really like how it's not got traffic like Seattle. You can actually drive places, and you don't feel like you're going to die in your car. So, Amen to that. Yeah, of like <laughs> of like old age. Like So anyway, I love Tacoma. Awesome. And that's actually a really nice segue to our other sponsor. Um, so this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies is also sponsored by Pumpkin Spice Lattes. Fall, it's the favorite season of white ladies. Hashtag sweater, weather, weather will soon be upon us. So you got to throw on your yoga pants and head to your favorite independently run, non-corporate, free trade coffee shop and drink your pumpkin spice latte guilt-free. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yep. Do you want to have our super heartfelt story? Mm, Do we have time? Let's go to Timeless or Terrible. Timeless or Terrible. Yeah. We are doing a segment called Timeless or Terrible. Interchangeable. White ladies! Hope, do you want to explain how that's going to work? Yes. So there are things that um, are kind of identified as the quintessential things of interchangeable white ladies yeah. everywhere, but specifically in this country. Yeah. So we've put a list of these items into our tin of fate, yeah. and we're going to go ahead and shake that tin up, and we're going to discuss, is this a timeless item, or is this actually secretly terrible? Secretly terrible. Or maybe not secretly terrible. Yeah, Are and this ready, is also Annie? an opportunity for us to make fun of ourselves, which is always really entertaining. Are you ready, Annie? I'm ready. Are you ready? Okay. What does it say? Timeless or terrible, Ugg boots. Ugg boots? Ugg boots. Go. Terrible. Why? Well, apart from the fact that they are made from two parts of an animal that are, it's just kind of like the, the animal parts are gross to me. Like the inside is like shearling or something, and it's like baby lamb fur. And then the outside, I should also tell everybody that I'm a vegan. I was going to put that out so there. So <laughs> it's just important to know. But like it just, it's kind of like. I don't know, mixed meats. It just kind of it gives me the creeps. Like Mixed meats? What's yeah, that? Yeah, like, you know, like meat where it's like several different kinds of meat mixed together, like cheap hot dogs. That's oh. what Ugg boots remind me of. They remind yes. me of like how many different animals can you <laughs> put in one shoe? And you know that there's like glue in the bottom that's made from yes. a cow. So it's just too much for mm. me. It's too much for me to comprehend. Um, also terrible because your feet get sweaty. Oh, yeah. So sweaty. Do people wear socks in Ugg boots? I, I, don't know. I freaking hope so. Flip and hope so. Oh, yeah. Because um, 
I hope so. I feel like they're also really expensive for no reason. <laughs> and also, they would get stinky, like, even if you wore socks. Yeah. All that moisture trap, they're not breathable. I'm going to yeah. say terrible. They're terrible. They're terrible. Okay, it's great. official. They're terrible. All right. Let's see our another. Is this timeless or is this terrible? <laughs> Lula Rowe. Um, well, I answered one. I'm going to tell you my feeling, and then I want to know what you think. Okay. Pyramid scheme. <laughs> The only way you can buy LuLaRoe is if you know somebody. Mm. And if they don't sell enough, they get some kind of punishment from above. And I feel like that is creepy. It's like a secret society, I I feel like. Mm -hmm. What I've heard is that they um, don't really have a good business scheme. And so if you're Mm -hmm. like like the pyramid scheme, if you're low on the bottom, you essentially pay a lot of money to get front-loaded some stock. Of, of leggings. Yes. Right? And dresses. Actually, I think the low level, you only get leggings. And the patterns are really ugly. So you're like, here's this Mickey Mouse no, pattern. That's horrible. Leggings that you just spent $80 on. Because aren't they all They're so expensive. <laughs> and they're just leggings. They are just leggings. But then I think— I guess as, they're really comfortable, but I would never know because I've never tried them because they're too expensive. Yes. So, I mean, I guess the real question is, if someone gave you a pair of LuLaRoe leggings, would, I take would you them? wear them? Take them and wear them. But if I took them, I'd probably have to sign like a blood oath that mm. I would buy them every year forever. So I don't think I would do it. So I'm going to have to say terrible. I And only because of the business model. They're probably wonderful feeling on your legs. But I can't. I can't. I can't do it. A lot of teachers wear LuLaRoe. Well, good for them. I'm happy. I don't have $80 to spend on leggings. All right. Good one. Uh, and we have one more last one. Okay. You want to pull? Yeah, I'll From pull. the Ten of yeah, Fate. Ten of Fate. Mmm. Hope. Oh, you're going to like this one. Timeless or terrible, kombucha. <laughs> also known by white ladies as booch. The booch. Uh, so I've always thought kombucha was nasty until yeah. my Why did you think friends, it was nasty? What was nasty about it? Because it looks scary in a jar. And what does and it taste like? It tastes a little bit like armpits mixed with dirty socks mixed with... It's got a little zing to it. Yeah, like apple juice that got left out yes. for like six years. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I have a good friend who's also a teacher, and she started making it, and mm. she converted me. Her kombucha oh. is delicious. Shout out Jen Newton awesome. <laughs> in Portland. Portland, of course. Yep. Um, and she gave me a mother so I could also make kombucha. So I'm actually going to go with it's timeless because it has spanned all of time. Yeah. And it there adapts. Were no, they don't find any LuLaRoe leggings in Egyptian no, tombs, they don't. but there's some fermented beverages down there. They so. definitely find some kombucha. And you can change it and adapt to your flavors of the what? time is what I've learned. So. I've never made it, so I'm I'm just going to trust you on that one. The mother is sitting in the bag of my fridge, and my husband keeps trying to throw it out because it's been like a year and a <laughs> well, half also, since I was. they are weird looking. The mothers are terrifying. weird looking. They look like aliens from space. So terrifying. Yeah. So I think we've come to the end of our um, episode today. Okay, so our last segment... Is called Do Your Fudging Homework. Interchangeable. White ladies. Because we're teachers. That's important. So my homework for all of you is this. Um, go check out Jeff Rakes from the Rakes Foundation article called Color Blindness is a Cop-Out. I recently heard him and came across this article um, when I was at the Aspen's Ideas Festival a few what? weeks ago. So bougie. I know. Um, somebody sponsored my ticket. Thank you for those of you that sponsored my ticket via My Famous Husband. Uh, Nathan Gibbs Bowling, who also has a podcast, the Nerd Farmer podcast, which you should listen to also on channel 253. 
um, shout out. So uh, sitting in this session, it was amazing um, and reading this article called Colorblindness is a Cop Out. And it's just really challenging to think about um, that idea of colorblindness. Often I think we've embraced that, particularly I say we as white women in particular have embraced that because, you know, we want to see everybody the same. And we think it comes from a place of... Um, equality and equity and kindness, um, but actually it is problematic, and we can talk about that in another episode. So do your fudge and homework, read that article, and we'll come back and talk about it. Yeah. The other homework recommendation I have for you, very short but important, I want you to go read Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. It's a little dated. It's very um, rudimentary, but, I mean, she wrote it in 1988. So it's a long time ago. It was. It, I was long, seven. She, the hope was seven, um, but it's still relevant today. Uh, a simple Google search will get you there. Take notes and prepare to discuss. Because if you're not ready, then I'm going to um, mark, you call home. mark you down and make you call your mom. So don't screw it up. Okay. Uh, there are some social risks for white people talking about racial issues, especially with other white folks. But if things are happening to our friends who are people of color, then we ha- and we have the ability to start a conversation and be better allies, then why would we not do that? So read your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies! Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Subscribe to the other podcasts. Nerd Farmer. Move to Tacoma. And Citizen Tacoma. Bye. Bye. Class dismissed. This is Channel 253.